Hello and welcome to the podcast for the March issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Richard Lane here and this month I'm joined once again by editor John McConnell to discuss some of the issue highlights. Welcome John, let's start with a systematic review and this is looking at the whole issue of tuberculosis and air travel. I'm assuming here the issue is, are passengers who uh, have TB, are there potential threats to other passengers with implications for public health, screening and the like? Well, yes, that is precisely the issue. I mean, there are guidelines saying that uh, passengers who've been exposed to a fellow passenger who's known to be to have TB there should be uh, followed up and screened. What this review is looking at is what the, the actual risk of um, contracting TB from a fellow passenger is and what the justification is for, these, for the screening policy. And I, I suppose the broad overall conclusion is that screening is actually a sort of a, a labour-intensive uh, activity, it's resource-intensive, and that the chances of uh, contracting disease in, in the, the air travel situation is is pretty small, and that perhaps the uh, the whole recommendation that screening should be done is not uh, appropriate, is not fully appropriate, and that those uh, resources, those scarce resources, could be devoted to other uh, TB activities. Indeed. Nevertheless, though, of course, the scientific question has to be answered, and I suppose a systematic review is probably the best way to go about it. Is that right? The systematic review is definitely the best way to go about it. It's the best way to, to collect the evidence. It's clear that the, the conclusions of this review do not fully support the recommendations that have been made. On the other hand, there are conflicting sets of recommendations, and, and um, this review is, is pretty conservative in its, in its conclusions. Its final viewpoint is that perhaps the money could be spent, better spent in other ways. Next, John, a review, and this, this seems to be a very challenging topic, and that is how best to get appropriate antibiotic prescribing in the hospital setting, not just in one place, but in many different settings across the world. A challenging issue here, John. What's the overall approach that the authors take here? Well, of course, the um, as with any... Uh drug which appears to produce miraculous results, uh, antibiotics are overused uh, and this is particularly true in the hospital setting. On the other hand if uh, in particular situations, certain situations if antibiotics weren't used then there are various modern medical procedures which we, we wouldn't be able to carry out and I think transplantation is a is a prime example here. What the authors are trying to do is to put the use of antibiotics in hospitals into more of a, um, a social, a behavioural and a sort of cultural context and not just look at it, look at things from a purely mechanistic point of view. I think their conclusions are that we need to introduce uh, changes in the way that antibiotics are used at a uh, in the hospital setting at a cultural level, uh, at, a, at an organisational level. We need to have some sort of international approach and we also need to, to bring about the uh, uh, changes in individual behaviour. Picking up on one of those points, John, the cultural aspect, presumably that means that two hospitals in two very different parts of the world could have very different issues or challenges concerning antibiotic prescription. So what would be an absolute no-go in one area might might not be so much of an issue in another area. Well, that's true because, of course, um, uh, as you say, different different hospitals will have particular uh, disease problems that they, they have to deal with. There is a case, I think, for, a, uh, for a, certainly for introducing some sort of international guidelines and having some sort of um, uh, international harmonisation of guidelines. There are so many different guidelines around the world that um, I think probably um, the major international bodies could get together uh, and this is an area in which we could certainly develop some sort of consensus. And staying with the the subject of overuse of antibiotics, there's a very interesting personal view and this concerns otitis media, middle ear infection, which I guess a good many people listening, uh, including myself, we've had at some stage of our lives. It's it's a very common bacterial infection, isn't it, John? It seems to be incredibly common, particularly amongst children. The the authors say that... uh, 
More than 80% of children will have developed acute otitis media at least once before the age of three, which is a, a remarkable figure. And of course, antibiotics are used pretty indiscriminately to, to treat this condition. And the real concern is that we don't have, although it is, um, it, it is, is uh, it, although it is a bacterial infection, then there's a fairly good chance that by the time the um, uh, a parent takes their child to see their doctor, then the disease is in its sort of self-curing stage anyway, and that the um, the antibiotics may be having no beneficial effect. This is not something which I think is, is being fully considered. So I think this is an area in which antibiotics are being considerably overused. Although, of course, the corollary to that, of course, is what we know about otitis media's effect in less developed countries, it can cause deafness and can even cause death. In there, there is some evidence that um, you can get um, uh, brain infections following ot- uh, untreated otitis media. This is a problem, as you say, of developing countries and, and, and not of the um, uh, not of, of resource-rich countries. So what is, I mean, this is a general question really to do with this conundrum or problem, the over-prescribing mm-hmm. of antibiotics or the appropriate prescribing of antibiotics, what physicians need to know is what type of bacterial infection it is so they can target the, the, the therapy more accurately. Yeah, we could do with some rapid diagnostics, which of course we, we don't have. At least as big a problem is persuading parents that in many cases their children would be better off being treated with painkillers as they would be with antibiotics. And finally, John, let's conclude with the leading edge, the editorial this month. And this is basically saying happy birthday to Gavi. That's the Global Vaccine Initiative. Mm. But this also ties in with news, if you like, for for some future funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. What are the kind of issues here, John? Well, Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunisation, is is, uh, uh, having its 10th birthday this year. And as a kind of birthday present to Gavi, the Gates Foundation has decided to donate $10 billion over the next 10 years for what Bill Gates has called a, a decade of vaccines. One of the issues here, I guess, is whilst it's on the one hand, fine to stand back and admire what vaccine programmes have done over the past few decades. Moving ahead, surely R&D's got to be a key thing because it's not about just implementing vaccine campaigns. It's about finding out which campaigns are most effective. Well, that's absolutely right because, of course, Gavi is essentially a delivery agency. So they will get some of the Gates money in order to continue the the, the programmes by which they're delivering their their 